You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Thank you for joining us. My name is Rosalino Candela. I'm a senior fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. I'm here joined by Dr. Peter Vetke. Dr. Peter Vetke is University Professor of Economics and Philosophy in the Department of Economics and the Director of the F.A. Hayek Program at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And he's here joined with us today. He's going to be talking about his latest book, the F.A. Hayek, Economics, Political Economy, and Social Philosophy. Pete, thanks for being with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Now, you've written a fascinating and interesting book, and I've read through it myself. Now, but for... That's an understatement. <laughs> Go ahead. And there are many things that I could talk to you about with this book and, and our conversation for today. But very briefly, if you could just uh, tell us a little bit about the overview of the book itself and the specific audience to which you were targeting uh, the, the writing of this book. Uh, that would be great. Sure. So <clears throat> the book is part of a series um, that Tony Thirlwall uh, edits for Macmillan, uh, Palgrave Macmillan, on great thinkers in economics. And so other books in that series are, of course, Adam Smith and John Maynard Keynes and um, Frank Knight and, and James Tobin and, you know, all the different, A.C. Pagu, Marshall, you know, these kind of people. And so I was uh, uh, approached um, by Tony and asked to do the book on Hayek. I gladly accepted the, the process of doing that. And then um, and then I had the difficulty of trying to figure out how to how to do that. Um, in the process of, of doing the book, I, I did do archival trips. I uh, spent some time at Hoover Institution. Both my wife and I uh, uh, rifled through the Hoover archives. Um, I uh, also went to the London School of Economics. Uh, Emily Scarbeck helped me in rifling through the LSE archives. Um, we also accessed uh, archives um, at uh, Grove City College, which are Mises's papers, um, and we also did the Library of Congress for Abba Learner's papers, um, as well as you know other people, James Buchanan archives, which I was involved in in the process of writing this book. I was also involved with the actual archiving of the project um, here at George Mason, and so um, all of this. Um, was involved plus you know dealing with Bruce Caldwell who is the actual editor of Hayek's Collected Works and now writing a biography of Hayek um, and interacting with Bruce um, during this process and asking him for various materials and whatnot and I kind of uh, came to a position that um, rather than writing a strict what might be called a strict intellectual biography I was going to write something different it was more about Hayekian ideas than it was about Hayek the man. Um, I didn't want to get tr uh, trapped in debates about Hayek the person because to me that's not the most important aspect. I, I 
think the world of people that do intellectual history in a serious way and um, and 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 delve deeply into the life of people and contextualize their ideas. <clears throat> but what I cared about uh, more or less was not so much the contextualization of Hayek's ideas, right. but how that contextualization of Hayek's ideas explains Hayek's Hayek evolution of Hayekian ideas. So what do I mean by that? So I, I think there's two great questions about the economics and the past. One of them is by George Stigler. And George Stigler asks, does the does economics have a useful past? And what Stigler argues is in the negative. Whatever is good in the past is currently in the moderns. And so economics really doesn't have a useful past. I disagree with Stigler on that. I am much more in line with my teacher uh, from graduate school, Kenneth Boulding, who wrote a, an essay called After Samuelson, Who Needs Smith? And his argument in there is that we all need Smith because the conversation that Smith offers us isn't exhausted by Samuelson. And this is a kind of a classic contra-Whig approach to intellectual history. Um, I've written on this, on, a, on another thing about this. And I view that also about the way that, that this question goes. So does economics have a useful past? I want to say yes. Now the second question is one asked by Deirdre McCloskey. And that is, does the past have a useful economics? And I... I also argue, she argues in the affirmative, and I agree with her on that, that the past does have a useful economics. There's a lot for us to make sense of the past by using good economics, and we can fix that. And we can assess good economics and bad economics by how well it aids us in understanding past historical disruptions, points of disruptions. So I'm trying to tell a book in which there's a overlapping Venn diagram <laughs> in which you have the past having a useful economics and the economics having a useful past. And that's going to, you know, Hayek resides in that, is my contention. Or Hayekian ideas, better put, uh, reside in that contention. And that the big events of the 20th century that Hayek is trying to live with are the massive macroeconomic volatility, most notably the Great Depression, but also even things like stagflation and all the way up to even now in the 21st century, like the global financial crisis. But also then the failure of socialism, the rise of socialism, the failure of socialist uh, you know, uh, economics in practice or socialist political economy in practice, the transition from socialism, the difficulty of that, but then also the difficulty of development economics in general. And I think Hayek has a lot to, Hayekian ideas have a lot to say about that. And so it's in that Venn diagram that I then try to tell the story of the arc of Hayek's career. And in the arc of Hayek's career, which is this continual refinement of his program, I divide it into four segments. Uh, this is all in the very much of the beginning of the book. And uh, as you know, because you helped me articulate that, uh, you, you understated the fact that you read it. I mean, you've been a, a, a constant uh, companion throughout the writing of this book and uh, bouncing ideas off of and helped sharpen it and helped me with uh, various different finding good discoveries and stuff. I couldn't have done this without you, and I want to acknowledge that um, you know, right away. But uh, so I divide it into these four areas. Coordination, economics is a coordination problem, which is Hayek's early work in technical economics. 
um, his frustration with his ability to get across what he thinks is basic economics to the peers in the economics profession leads him in the 19, late 1930s, 40s, to then go into a second stage of his career, which I call the Abuse of Reason Project, which is where he goes into his more methodological and critique of scientism. And then <clears throat> after he establishes that and then pulls off what I, the crucial thing in the book is to articulate this twin move of Hayek, which is that in his response to the frustrations with others with technical economics, not his frustration with technical economics, his frustration with others not understanding the point of technical economics as he understood it, it leads him to both emphasize a institutional direction, okay? That is, is that economics has been missing a focus on the for, on the core institutions within which economic activity takes place, which was the hallmark of economics from Adam Smith to John Stuart Mill, but in the 20th century got pushed to the background and therefore from the background got forgotten. And Hayek is trying to bring it back. So we need to have property, law, politics, social and cultural mores have to be part of our economics. And he's going to bring that back in into our study of economics and he's the first mo new institutionalist in some sense because right and so that's all part of the abuse of reason project is bringing that back in but then also it's why is it that they didn't bring it in that's an epistemic uh, argument right there's an epistemology of the social sciences and that the social sciences are different from from, from so me Hayek has two different points methodologically he has a a period where he emphasizes the humanness of the human sciences. That's like in the subjectivity aspects and things like that. But then he also emphasizes the difference between simple phenomena and complex phenomena. So the human sciences are both human and complex, and that means that we have to approach them differently. Our study of, of the study of, of, of human uh, interactions and society as a whole. and that So that's his abuse of reason project. And then that leads to finally then he has to restate liberalism. Those is the institutions that are necessary for a vibrant, growing economy. And that's his third stage of his career. And that takes us from books like the uh, Constitution of Liberty to Law, Legislation, and Liberty. So in the 60s and 70s, so 50s through 80, let's say. And then in the, po in the 1970s, he starts to then wonder why is it that liberal institutions aren't adopted, so similar to the technical economics, and that leads us to a fourth stage in his career, which I don't really develop a lot in the book, um, which is the philosophical anthropology of man, which is about what our, our hardwired, our, uh, what we have has been hardwired in us from our evolutionary past. And just, you know, so I hope that a lot of people do research on this in the future. It's about the tension that exists between our moral intuitions which are a product of our evolutionary past and the moral demands of the liberal order, which are something that we have to evolve our thinking about and improve our thinking about because we, it requires us to move beyond our evolutionary past. And this is a huge issue with yeah. everything that's going on today with the rise of populism, that there's yeah. backlash against immigration, trade, and so on and so forth. But before we continue that, there was something I wanted to go back to which is you mentioned something very important about Hayek and in the structure of your book. And it seems to be that the uniting theme around which your, your argument is built upon is this term or this, 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 this 
idea called epistemic institutionalism. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I argue that in those stages, if you draw a line of continuity, so quite obviously by the fact that I'm introducing stages, I'm suggesting that there's a discontinuity at some level in what Hayek's research focuses on. But I also want to see in it this continuity that goes all the way from his earliest studies all the way to his last studies. And I argue that's in his focus on the epistemic properties. Now, there's two ways to think about epistemology, right? One of them is the epistemology of the scientist and the way that we scientists come to know. But when I'm talking about epistemic institutionalism, I'm talking about how it is that actors within the economy themselves or the polity come to learn, all right, or come to know. And so that's what I mean by epistemic institutionalism. So it's different institutions provide different learning environments for actors to coordinate their activity with one another. And <clears throat> so you can think about whatever social situation is like a classroom. And in a classroom, you need to have, you know, the sort of uh, signals and everything, the environment set up that's conducive to learning. But some environments are not conducive to learning. And if they're not conducive to learning, then what happens is that they fall short on utilizing the knowledge that's embedded in the system. In the, in, you know. and, um, and so to me, this is what Hayek is trying to get us to think about when it comes to assessing political and economic systems. Why that's important is because Hayek is not denying what I'll call and contrast in the book with incentive institutionalism. He does recognize that alternative institutional environments structure incentives differently. 100% important point to make. But in the debates that Hayek was involved in, you have to remember is that the socialists, as well as the Keynesians, okay, what they argued was that the individual person was either going to be transformed okay, into something different than what they currently were, or they were incapable of rationally responding to the incentives that they faced. That's the reason why you get the... the so e either they are going to be a different person, or they're incapable of their current person of rationally responding. So in the argumentative context of the time, it's just not a very powerful argument for Hayek to respond back and say, hey, pay attention to the incentives because people are saying that the incentives either are off the table or you can't know, the people don't know how to do it. So what Hayek stresses is, okay, let's assume that people have the right incentives. But even if they have the right incentives, how do they know what the right thing to do is given those incentives that they face? And that's where he gets his linchpin argument about what we call the knowledge problem. And when we have absence of knowledge, because we're not learning based on the economic knowledge that's there, we're going to substitute in for that other forms of knowledge, which is more readily available. And so part of that is that in political decision making, we have knowledge about politics, because we know that if we concentrate benefits and disperse costs, we're going to end up by being more politically viable in our project. And so that wins out over choosing the economic conditions. And so this is why you get these unattended, undesirable consequences from the various different interventions, large and small. 
And so Hayek is, has a knowledge problem that feeds also into a power problem. Uh, and it's the two of those that explain why the frustration, not only in the large-scale socialist project like in the former Soviet Union, or in the collapse of development planning like in, say, in Latin America, Africa, and, and other countries which have lingered despite tremendous amount of resources being spent on them, but then also in the social democratic West and the Keynesian exercise in which we've been witnessed by macroeconomic volatility and particularly a public debt crisis, which is still looming in many countries. So I think Hayek, you know, it, it's a, as you know, uh, one of the things that I repeat quite often in the book is a Hayek's Nobel uh, address. Um, so Hayek's Nobel Address is called The Pretense of Knowledge. <coughs> and what he argues in The Pretense of Knowledge is that he begins by saying that we economists must recognize we made a mess of things. So that's the first thing he says. And then the second thing he says is that the reason why we made a mess of things is because we succumbed to scientism. So he gives a culprit. We made a mess of things. Uh, we, we followed the wrong scientific methodology. That scientific methodology led uh, us into the morass that we're in, public policy-wise. And his argument is that unless we fix scientism, uh, we are going to threaten the intellectual uh, viability of our discipline. Okay, that's one. But two, uh, if we keep pursuing this wrong approach, we threaten to be um, uh, tyrants over our fellow citizens and destroyer of the very civilization by which we uh, f have been able to flourish. And, so, you know, remember the great fact, right? That's the, 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 the civilization that gives us the great fact, the, the increase in, in, in real income. Right. Uh, um, and so that's a very strong challenge to his colleagues. And I take that challenge seriously, and I'm trying to tell that story uh, from his point of view about the evolution of Hayekian ideas and then what that means for the restructuring of the liberal project today. Now, from reading your book, the, the, the pinnacle chapter that I take from your book is chapter four, which is uh, Hayek on market theory and the price system, which is a very Kersnerian turn on the title. And I won't... <laughs> I wanted to see uh, talk a little bit about why, in what, from reading your book, for example, graduate students today and economists and other social scientists today can take away from what Hayek was arguing with regards to this epistemic institutionalism in his rebuttal to the market socialists, how that would change the way economics is studied today and the way in which economics would be practiced today. I know that's a, I'm throwing a lot at you, but there's a lot to be said about the way microeconomics is understood today as opposed to the way Hayek understood microeconomics. So yeah. could, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. So I think the, uh, one of the, the crucial aspects of that chapter um, is first to recognize, as Jim Buchanan uh, also pointed out in his uh, presidential address of the Southern Economic Association, on what should economists do. 
is that rather than studying optimization behavior um, in equilibrium outcomes, what economists should be studying is the exchange relations and the institutions within which exchange takes place and the processes of adaptation and adjustment that are required now in order for those exchange relations to be ongoing. Now, I think that once you make that move, you then see that the crucial institutions of the market turn from, at the foundation, private property rights. Um, and so therefore, we have to study the economics of property. Um, this goes all the way back to David Hume, in which he argued that the foundations of civil societies, in, in this sense of society is what he means there, um, is the foundation of that is to be found in property, contract, and consent. Or the way he puts it, the stability of possession, the transference by consent, and the keeping of promises. Okay, So we have property, contract, and consent. That's the foundation idea. Now what that gives rise to in the consistent and persistent application of that framework to the study of exchange relations and the institutions, that institution within which exchange takes place, is you end up by getting ownership, pattern of ownership, a relative prices, terms of exchange, and profit and loss. And it's because we have property prices and profit and loss that we're able to engage in economic calculation. Without economic calculation, we couldn't sort out between the array of technologically feasible projects, those which are economically viable. And so this, this importance of economic calculation is at the core of understanding how e economic coordination takes place, going all the way back to Hayek's first thing. And note that if I'm following through my argument there, that the reason why people started to get confused about economic calculation is because they got confused about institutions. And they, since the institutions were in the background, they therefore were forgotten. And instead, we just had the optimality conditions. But in the Austrian rendering of the market process, the optimality conditions are the byproduct of the exchange process and production process, not prior to it. You don't have the marginal optimalities prior and then you just fulfill those plans. Those things come out of a selecting out of the weeding, right? And so this is where the Austrians are coming from in that. So that leads to the idea that what we must have in our microeconomics is relative price economics and that the focus of the, of the unit, of course, is the individual, but not necessarily the optimizing behavior of the individual, but the exchange opportunities that the individual sees, and therefore the recognition of those exchange opportunities, which means entrepreneurship. So we have to have entrepreneurship at the core of our economics, and prices, property prices and profit and loss kick in. And so what I argue in there, uh, again, is that the market process view is one that views the market is continually agitating, right? And so it's constantly in ceaseless flux. And what guides us through this ceaseless flux is the institutions of prices and profit and loss. We need to have those guides, pro pr prices, property might structure our incentives or gives us a pattern, but we need prices in order to guide our exchange and production behavior. And we need profits to lure us and we need losses to discipline us. So one of my uh, you know, great lines from Buchanan's What Should Economists Do Again is where he talks about the market 
as becoming rather than the market is you know already there and so i also like the fact that that uh uh, Alarman Alchin's book is titled not as collected works and, and not the universal economics or university economics, but another collection of his essays was titled economic forces at work, not economic forces after they work. Alchin's not trying to tell us what the optimality conditions would be if all the economic exchange behavior took place and all the least cost technologies were employed, you know, boom, we'd be at the equilibrium point. I'm not denying by the way, that if change cease and all the information is taken into account, we would get to these optimality conditions. It's very important to understand that. But what you're doing is flipping that to be in the background, and then the foreground is the exchange relations and the Hig what Adam Smith called the higgling and bargaining of the market. That's going to be in the foreground. In the background is if all the gains from trade were exhausted and all the gains from innovation were exhausted, you would have the marginal conditions met and least cost technologies would be employed. Um, another way to think about this is as Israel Kersner has done, and I try, you know, I, it, you mentioned the Kersnerian reading of that title. Remember, I'm talking about Hayekian ideas. So I don't limit that chapter or any of the chapters to what Hayek wrote himself. That is the vast majority of the textual work that I deal with, but I also use a lot of the secondary literature which is employing Hayek's ideas to make further sense out of where Hayekian ideas are going. Um, and so I always really like this paper by uh, Kirzner called The Meaning of Market Process in which he makes a distinction between the underlying variables of the market and the induced variables of the market. So the underlying variables are tastes, technology, and resource availability. And the induced variables in the markets are prices, profit and loss, and pattern of resource ownership. The way you have to view this is that the induced variables of the market are always chasing in the direction of the underlying variables. Because any time that the induced are not lined up perfectly with the underlying, there's profit opportunities. Right? And so individuals will be alert to that which is in their interest to be alert to. And so they'll try to act on that. There's gains from trade and gains from innovation that haven't yet been pursued. And so they're, they're constantly doing that. If they dovetail perfectly, then what you are is in equilibrium. Right? And it'd be perfectly reflected it's in equilibrium. So the reason why they uh, think about a dog chasing a rabbit. <laughs> if the rabbit is the underlying variables and the dog is the, t the direction that the dog's going to go is the induced variables, what's going to go on is the equilibrium for the dog will be when he catches the rabbit. But as he gets near the rabbit, the rabbit changes. All we can tell you is that the direction of which the dog runs is going to change. And that's the ongoing market process. And that's what I tried to explain in that chapter. And I do agree with you that it reads, if you read it, it reads backwards into the macroeconomic debates. That's what prices and production is all about. And it reads forward into the socialist calculation debates because that's what's missing in the socialist account. And so both the macro debate, which clouded the understanding of the market process, and the socialist debate, which ended up by misunderstanding the importance of the underlying institutions for the process to take place, miss the very reason why. So that core chapter is, as, as you pointed out, identifies the key thing. Now, from what you're talking about, Hayek seemed to provide a very robust account of the market. There are these imperfections, right? Individuals are, are fallible, but they're capable individuals, right? But so long as the institutional conditions are in place, there will be this tendency 
towards equilibrium or, or coordination, as Hayek would say. But so many of Hayek's ideas have impacted into the mainstream, yet they've been filtered through a mainstream view. And I could think of many different economists who have been impacted by Hayek. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, Burnham Smith, Leonoid Hirschwitz with, uh, with mechanism design theory, perhaps even Raoul Coase, well, and, his, and the influence of the socialist calculation debate and Hayek's account of that. But specifically, right, we could think about two particular giants in economics uh, in the fields of information economics. For example, George Stigler and, and Joseph Stiglitz. What do they pick up from Hayek, but what is lost in translation? So it's a great question. Let me come back to Vernon Smith and Ronald Coase after I have two minutes on Stigler and Stiglitz. So ironically, because Stigler and Stiglitz are about as diametrically opposed as you could imagine in their uh, outcomes, they actually share a similar kind of analysis. Um, what they do is they treat information as bits, little bits of a commodity that you can purchase. And what Stigler argues is that we buy the uh, equilibrium amount of information. So it's not like we buy all the information. We buy the information until the marginal, uh, until the marginal cost exactly equals the marginal benefit of the next additional piece of information we're going to buy. What Stiglitz does is picking up on that reading of, of Hayek via Stigler, basically, he then tries to show that we're going to systematically fall short of getting to where the marginal benefits and the marginal cost because of imperfections in our knowledge um, or paradoxes. So, you know, one of his big things with Sandy Grossman is the paradox of perfect knowledge. That is that if I real if I reveal all of the information, once I reveal it, it's now publicly available. I don't reap all the rewards for it. Therefore, therefore I'll underinvest in doing this. Stigler sees us as optimally investing in the information. Uh, um, you know, Stiglitz sees us as underestimating, underinvesting uh, under in the amount of information, therefore getting market imperfections, whereas Stigler sees us as getting market perfection. The problem is both of these guys miss what Hayek was trying to argue. Um, what Hayek is trying to argue is not so much about the bits of information, but the knowledge that's being tapped into that is resides in the man on the spot that's in the system. So it's not that the analyst ends up by being able to assess the information and get to the optimal amount of information production and distribution. It's that the agents in the economy have access to information or knowledge that in fact no theorist could ever know. And uh, so the, the one way to think about this is that if I go to the library and I'm trying to write an economics paper, and I go to the, to, to the library and I look through the journals, and when I'm looking through the journals, I'm doing an optimal search. I have a, an idea here. I got marginal benefit, marginal cost calculation going on in my head. But what happens if all of a sudden while I'm looking up the latest paper by Rosalina Candela, you know, I end up by finding another paper by, you know, uh, not Rosalino Candela, but, uh, you know, uh, some other, you know, uh, young uh, hotshot, uh, Ennio Piano, Piano or whatever. And, uh, and then I see that article, and through pure serendipity, that article allows me to now do something that I couldn't have done before. I'm now that context gave me a rise to a new synthesis, 
which if I never had done that search, I never would have had that synthesis. This is true for scholars. It's also true for factory owners on the spot, um, you know, deciding on, on, you know, who would have ever thought about putting, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, buffalo chicken on a pizza. You know, like that's not supposed to be on the pizza. But, yeah, no, people did it. Someone came up with at one time a Hawaiian pizza. I mean, just think about that. Like, you know, what person ever would have thought, oh, yeah, put some ham and pineapple on a pizza. It would have been at like, I think it's an aberration of God or whatever that they do it. But it sells, right? And and they call it a Hawaiian pizza. And so there they, they have it on there. But why did they have that? They found out a way that that actually met with tastes of certain kind of consumers. And therefore, they found a market for that. You know, you wouldn't have that from on top. You get that only on the ground. And so Hayek is seeing how we get information. Information, the way I like to make this is the distinction between information and the knowledge. And so information is the existing stock, all right, of knowledge. Whereas knowledge is the new, new flow of stuff coming into that to make that so the more we know the more the, the the more we know we don't know right and so it's this constant growing out of the outer frontier of our knowledge that hayek is trying to tap into that individuals within the economy have that theorists don't have and so how do we account for that and that's different from the information economy. So i don't know if that's a great way to answer that i I didn't think about doing it exactly the right way before. I no, no, but this is, makes sense. For example, going back to the pizza example, right? There are many different recipes, right? So we have this technology available, but how do we sort through these technologies, right? Yeah. You need property, prices, and profit and loss. So in some sense, right, which combinations is going to be profitable, that knowledge would never emerge outside of, of the, the process economy. itself. Right. And that's true of scholarship as well. Like what, what are what you know scientific ideas move or whatever, and so there's a connection there between those. Let me make a comment about Ronald Coase and, and Vernon Smith as well. So I think that it's important to remember that Coase comes out of the LSE tradition. So Coase's whole emphasis on exchange and the idea of bargaining and bargaining away these things that comes right out of uh, you know this sort of LSE tradition that we were talking about for Chapter Four. So I think Coase is clearly influenced by Hayek in that both in terms of actual like physical presence of being a student at the LSE during that time when Hayek is all in the air, but also just spiritually in terms of the way he thinks about the economic problem. Right. Uh, Vernon Smith is also very much influenced by this. And if you think about, and that comes from Vernon Smith's deep study of Bambavrik's horse market, um, which is that you have to understand is that in Bambavrik's horse market, again, going back to the market becoming, Markets don't begin begin as perfectly competitive. All right, they don't begin as perfectly competitive. They begin as monopolistic, and then through the process of competitive entry and and development, they become more and more what we call like competitive markets. And this is and he studies this and he studies the excess demand problem, and then he gets involved in experimental economics. He's doing a simple trading game, and if you think about what he does in that simple trading game, these auctions that he does, is he has uh, your small numbers, and that people that are into understand perfect competition will understand what I'm setting up here. He goes small numbers, okay. Price is not a parameter. Price is a variable that the participants, you know, uh, emerge. And they're not given full and complete information. They don't have everyone's, you know, value scale or cost function. Those are just out there, 
they, they, those are those are the theorist has them, but the participants don't in the experiment. So prices aren't sufficient statistics. Right? No, they're not parameters in his model. And what he shows is a groping market. So what Smith demonstrates in his experiments is that you get this groping market where you get market clearing in three rounds or whatever. So again, thinking about your question about imperfect markets and perfect markets, note that the process hasn't stopped yet. And that's why it's the imperfect round one becomes less imperfect if we can use that language in round two and then doesn't, it disappears by round three. And so what we have in Vernon Smith is an actual demonstration of Hayek's, you know, uh, argument here about that the price system can coordinate economic activity, the relative prices in the economy, without us having full and complete information, without us having infinite numbers of buyers and sellers, and without us treating price as, as all actors as price takers. Instead, we have a price maker model, and we have small numbers, and they don't have full and complete information, but nevertheless, the price system coordinates that. It allows the system to have an intelligence, what Smith later on calls ecological rationality. Right. Yeah. So switching gears now, we've talked a lot about economic theory, uh, specifically price theory, and, and the way in which Hayek understood price theory. But this has massive implications for not only about how economics is understood today right, by scholars, or even graduate students who are learning economics today, but also with regards to its application to public policy, how economists and economic and policymakers understand right, what are the correct fixes, you might say, that might be needed in the marketplace. Right? And I could think of just several different arenas of policy, antitrust, or for example, the application nowadays of big data, right? randomized control trials and development economics, the way we calculate GDP in macroeconomics, or even a field like behavioral law and economics. In what way, if, if Hayek was correctly understood, right, or understood the way that you are talking about in this, in this book, what implications would it have for each of these subfields? So the bigger question is, um, so it's a wonderful book written by um, one of our former postdocs here uh, with Cambridge University Press, um, called, um, a gentleman named Erwin Decker, teaches at Erasmus University in, in Rotterdam. And uh, his book is about the Austrian economists in the inner war years, so the founding of the school through the inner war years in Vienna. And it's called The Viennese Students of Civilization. And his argument is clear that the way the Austrians conceived of their project, that they were students of civilization, not would-be saviors of civilization. So economics is a tool of social understanding, not a tool of social control. The 20th century was about the victory of the social control approach over the social understanding approach. And part of what this book argues is that we should go back to the more social understanding point of view. Be students again. Students and scholars, never saviors and, and, and engineers, right? Not engineers and saviors of the system. And so as a result, some of these policies were built on the idea that it was about social control, 
these policies are tools of social control. Antitrust is one of them. I mean, go to Washington, D.C., and go and look at the Federal Trade Commission. Outside the Federal Trade Commission is a giant picture of a beast and a man harnessing the beast and fighting it back. And it says, man controlling commerce. Right? And that was the belief, the progressive error belief, is that we no longer lived in the world that allowed us to allow the market to correct itself and everything. The externalities, to use modern language, are too big. And so, therefore, what we need to do is we need to control it. But the problem, of course, is what if the very effort to control private market externalities creates the very possibility of public externalities, which are even more huge. So let me tell you a little story uh, that might make sense. It relates to regulation, and uh, it might make me look bad in it, but that's okay. So at the London School of Economics many years ago, Pete Leeson and I were part of a conference, and uh, Ann Kruger was part of this conference. A lot of, a lot of very well-known economists, much better well-known than myself, uh, were there, and it was a great opportunity. Tim Bessley put together the conversation, and, and we were part of it. And Pete and I wrote a paper, and that paper became two-tiered entrepreneurship later on. And um, anyway, we um, uh, uh, Ann Kruger gets up to talk, give her talk, and she says, no offense to my George Mason friends. This is a funny kind of way for her to preference. But we all know that a market society, uh, it leads to vibrancy and growth and everything like that. So we want to have a market society, but we also want to have a market society that has reasonable regulation that is not capturable by interest. Reasonable regulation that's not capturable by interest. So at some level, who would ever want to be against reasonable regulation that's not capturable by interest? But I raised my hand because that's how I do things. And I said, what if that's a null set? And Andre Schleifer responded by saying, you know, he chuckled and he says, why are you being so unreasonable? <laughs> you know, like that. And, and so it sort of chuckled and went away. But I've, I've never had anyone answer me that question, which reminds me of Coase, right? Remember, Coase does this interview and they say, are you against regulation? And he says, no, I mean, I, I would not be against any kind of regulations provided someone showed me that it was beneficial. But the regulations that I've seen to date are not reasonable and not capturable by interest. He didn't say that, but that's basically what he was saying. And so when we study regulation, we need to study the political process that gives rise to that regulation. And if that regulation shows antitrust introduced to protect the competitive process, or is it to protect those interest groups that agitated for the law, the, the, the particular case, to protect them from the rigors of competition? So is antitrust to protect from competition or promote competition. So even Bill Bommel has a famous paper uh, that was in the uh, JPE, or I think in JPE, might be in Journal of Law and Economics, uh, with Jonas Ordover, both professors at NYU when I was there, and it's it's called on the use of antitrust by businessmen, you know, to, lo to fight against their other right. opponents. And they went that and did an empirical study to show that the antitrust suits that were brought were not brought to be benefit the consumer, but brought by the competitors to kind of use the law to subvert the competitive process by, you know, and so that means that they're captured, right? And so, so I think whenever we study regulation, wherever, so if I look at things like RCTs, 
One of the questions in development economics, they, you know, they have nice rhetoric about that, you know, evidence-based policy for the first time, blah, 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 and, you know, and, and everything. And, and I applaud the effort. It's great. I mean, you know, these are brilliant people and they're sincere and they're trying to do this. But the question I'd always have to Esther Duflo and one of her and her group that's doing this poverty alleviation stuff or whatever improvements is that is it scalable and is it sustainable? Like it's one thing to do this study in a small village, but now based on that knowledge, can I scale that up to the economy as a whole? And is it economically sustainable? Meaning, can they, you know, who pays for what and what does someone do? You know, right. sometimes at some point the meat and potatoes of all this have to hit the hit the floor, hit the right. ground. And you gotta, you know, address that. And so this is what the RCTs and the big data stuff. You know, last thing I'll say about this again, it's similar to the knowledge problem issue, is that we might have a tremendous amount of information on the web, but what we don't have is very much knowledge, right? Or we don't have wisdom, right, in the use of this. So big data doesn't speak for itself, it just sort of, you know, seems to do that. So let me give you a, a quick example of this, which I think, you know, is an important thing to study, and I don't know the answer to it. This is a key thing about Hayek. Hayek is a lifelong learner. Hayekians need to be lifelong learners. We don't have the answers for all questions. What we have is research approach, which allows us to ask questions. Sometimes it don't have answers, right? But that's that's okay. But think about Raj Chetty's work on uh, income mobility. All right. So one of the things that they did, and it's amazing amount of data that they have available now. You know, millions of data points because they can have zip codes, and they can have test scores. And then they can have per capita, you know, uh, GD, you know, income, real income levels. And they can track these things. It's pretty amazing. Amazing amount of data. So what you can find is that, and it's an interesting result. If I take a kid that has the same, uh, this is a sort of rough way to talk about. It's not identical, but it's a quick, way, quick and easy way to think about it. Right. You can take a kid in eighth grade, and they have identical test scores. One is in a zip code that has bad per capita income, the other one, or low per capita income, and the other one is one that's a high per capita income. And what I can do is that lifelong trajectories for real income for these people, if they stay in those zip codes, you're going to have the one that's in the high income area is going to get higher income, and the one in the lower in, uh, per capita income is going to have lower lifelong earnings, even if they have the same test scores. But if I took that person that had that test score and moved them into the high income uh, zip code, they'll have higher lifetime earnings. So what I know about is I know about people and I know about places. But here's the question. What are the practices that make for a high income, high per capita income zip code? There's nothing about a zip code that makes it high income. In fact, one of the great things to watch in the United States is the shifting of the per capita incomes over time in the different zip code areas. You know, I grew up in New Jersey. At one time, West Orange was a extremely high income area, right? And then it 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 didn't. It, it migrated. They changed. People move out and they do other things. And so we see this all the time, this shifting. And so the question that we have to ask is, what are the practices that give rise to higher real incomes. So if you if if you follow the basic <laughs> economics of this, you know, the only way to increase real productivity to increase real incomes is to increase real productivity. The only way to increase real productivity is by improvements in physical capital, human capital, 
and the rules under which human capital and physical capital interact. So we have to talk about these rules level of analysis. That means that's part of the practices. And how do I get access to that even though I'm using big data? The, I, the question still remains unanswered. I got all this big data, but the why question. So what big data helps me do is answer what questions, what is happening, and when it's happening. What it can help us do is answer why questions. Why is what's happening happening? And that's the key question for the theoretical social sciences. That's why we have to actually pursue those kind of questions because we're in the why nexus, not in the what nexus. We're not our our we're trying to get understanding, not descriptions, right? right. And that's the key thing. We want to get understanding. All right. So from the standpoint of the social scientist as a student, right? The question is is what can we learn from the certain set of rules if we're using these type of practices, right? Yeah. Which or or why do those practices induce that kind of behavior? And why do other practices induce other behavior? And see, that's why I think it's vitally important to have both institutional, uh, I mean, incentive institutionalism and epistemic institutionalism. Right. I don't want to say that one is better than the other. I, I think both are needed to do there. But I think that Hayek's unique contribution or Hayekian's is the epistemic institutionalism. But both forms of, and that's why I have the, the chapter in the book called A Genuine Institutional Economics. Right. Yeah. Now, we've talked a lot about F.A. Hayek and his economics and its economic implications, but let's shift gears and talk a little bit about political economy and social philosophy, yeah. since it's part of the subtitle of your book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, we've talked a lot about the market society and the institutional underpinnings, but what is the moral and, and political upshot or the political and moral implications of Hayek's framework, and, and what is its relevance? I mean, Hayek died in 1992. As you, as you mentioned, he lived through the Great Depression. He was an artillery officer in World War I. He lived through World War II, the Cold War. But now we're in a, in a new set of circumstances with the rise of uh, nationalism, with the rise of populism, with um, anti-rhetoric uh, anti, uh, that's, that's anti-commerce, that's uh, against free trade. Are these issues relevant for, to what Hayek was talking about? Uh, in his time, and what is the the role of of epistemic institutionalism and these institutions for liberalism as a whole? And another way of thinking about the question I'm I'm saying is, what's the relationship between markets and market processes as Hayek understood them, and liberalism, and and how it is properly understood? I mean, as I, I mean, I spend a lot of time in the book. Um, at the very end of the book, talking about the liberal project. So if you remember my, my dividing up of Hayek's career, right. you have economics as a coordination problem, which is technical economics, prices as guides to production. Okay, And then you have the abuse of reason project, which is about the methodological uh, confusions that led to people to not understand the economics as a coordination problem. And then once you clear the grounds for that, we're now back at the realm where we need to understand the role of institutions and those institutions being the liberal institutions of the rule of law, uh, you know, uh, freedom of contract, 
um, uh, you know, limited government, independent judiciary, these kind of things, right? And so then that's federalism. And so those are kind of the institutional environment questions. And Hayek is then the restatement of liberalism. Now, the difficulties of implementing the liberal project in his time is what leads him to the philosophical anthropology point. As I said, I don't talk about that as much in the book. I'm stuck on these first three and then developing uh, that argument. Now, one of the reasons why I'm taking a little longer way to get back to this is you is that I think a lot of people who don't like Hayek or like Hayek think of him primarily as a political theorist who happened when he was younger to be an economist. I think that's a misunderstanding of Hayek's project and the Hayekian project. The Hayekian project is a methodological and analytical project in the social sciences before it's a social philosophical project. So the social philosophical aspect builds on the earlier economics and political economy. And Hayek has two ways in which he argues for his methodology. The one is, is that the sciences of humans is different from the sciences of physical objects. And this is where subjectivism and aspects come in. And so therefore you have methodological dualism. Science of physical project, uh, science of physical objects, science of, of human objects. That means that we are what we study, and that changes a lot. Later in his career, he emphasizes more the sciences of simplicity and the sciences of complexity. And it turns out, you know, in that equation, that a lot of the difficulties of the sciences of man, of the human sciences, show up as sciences of complex phenomena. So there's an overlap between those, but his, his point of emphasis is different. And that leads to a different way in which we uh, you know, frame these kind of questions when we want to study exchange and the institutions within which exchange takes place. So what I would argue is that um, Hayek's lessons about how the institutional environment affects our learning in politics, in society, in markets is universal, but the manifestations of it are going to be in the institutional details. How it is that we learn depends on different environments. The state of technology, the state of human, right? What institutions can actually we work with is a function of the state of technology and the state of human capital at any given time. So as Pete Leeson likes to say, you know, the uh, rules tell us what's permissible, the constraints tell us what's feasible. And so we have to always recognize this aspect when we're studying things. So what about liberalism and what about the liberal project today? So a large part of what I try to show in the book is that Hayek saw the liberal project not as a fixed and wooden doctrine, but one that was capable of constant evolution and adaption given the different shifts of the time. So right now we are confronted with a lot of things that look similar to some of the debates that took place in the early part of the 20th century. There's a sort of you know, nationalism, odious you know, racial doctrines on the table, a kind of irrationalism. What... I use a, a book by a, a mathematician in here to frame the discussion uh, talking about the early uh, 20th century in Vienna. He calls it exact thinking in demented times. Uh, Carl Sigmund is his name. That's a great book. And he is using it to talk about the Vienna Circle. I use it to talk about Hayek. I argue, I argue look, uh, exact thinking in demented times. Well, one answer was the Vienna Circle. The other answer was Hayek's. Well, at the end of the book, I want to say, look, we're living through our own per version of demented times. 
And we have to come up with answers to these demented times. And so, you know, what in the Hayekian message can still speak to us today about the way that we frame our interactions with each other so that we can realize a humane society? And the, the way I like to think about this is that in, in my uh, discussions is that it's a mistake for theorists to believe that we could live in a world which eliminates all the rough edges. Right. We live in a world of sharp objects. We bump into each other. We disagree. We have a But the goal is to find rules that allow us to live better together. We can't assume a singular, stable social welfare function that society chooses. We live in a pluralistic society. We have all these you know, different values and stuff. And we have no single scale. Once we have no single scale, that means that we have to organize our political structures differently. So when, for Hayek, liberalism was a cosmopolitan project, it sounds like. I mean, that's my argument. Yeah. But the issue is, is that we have these institutions of contestation built in. This is why you have federalism or polycentric orders. Why it is that you might see in the future an idea of overlapping competing jurisdictions as opposed to some kind of unified government. Because what we want to do is we want to take those sharp edge edges not erase them, but instead dull them so that in our social interactions, where it's coarse, we might get bruised and cut, but never deeply wounded. And because we can't assume away, oh, everyone's going to get along harmonious, you know, we're all going to have unicorns and, you know, rainbows or whatever. That's not the world we live in. We live in a world, as you put it earlier, of fallible but capable human beings who live in a very imperfect world. And the question is, and my argument here is that the liberal institutions of cosmopolitan order actually are the institutions that allow us to have the closest thing to simultaneously have a humane society and experience the great value of the continuing great fact of the non-scalar growth that's associated with human progress. Right. So in Hayek's framework, the institutions, property, prices, and profit and loss not only made economic coordination possible, but in some sense made human cooperation on the division of labor and human flourishing possible as well. Now, uh, just one concluding uh, question, which is, if there's one idea that you wanted uh, students and scholars of Hayek to come away with from your book, what would that be? Well, the simple one is, is, is read Hayek and, and make him live for you today. Um, and, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, what my hope is, is that, uh, young students of economics, so not undergraduate students that are just getting introduced to economics, um, but also not, you know, 35 year old professors of economics because they're, they're, they got their own thing going on. They got, you know, but what this is written for is the, basically the, uh, 20 year old to 25 year old. Uh, student, serious student of economics who has decided by the time they're 20 that they're going to go get a doctorate and become a professional economist. I want them to think, what kind of economist am I going to be and get inspired to go be that professional economist. And then when they're in graduate school and facing up to the incentives that the economics profession has, for them to believe that there is value in pursuing the Hayekian research program in their own research rather than something that they might read for you know wisdom or whatever so I want to inspire both them studying deeper economics but also inspire them to commit their career to pursuing this set of methodological analytical 
and social philosophical ideals. And let me just say that, you know, part of the thing that I did in the book, which was to provide in the appendix, is I have a, uh, you know, a citation study that goes through Hayek and shows how Hayek actually has had an impact in the economics profession, especially among elite economists. He can affect the DNA of economics. Now, let me come back to that before we conclude. So, but he can affect the DNA of economics. He's not just another economist. He's one of the special ones. And I try to provide documentary evidence of that. Uh, by the way, that's count, contra uh, the claim that's made in Avner Offer's book, The Nobel Factor, um, and also contra to something Paul Krugman once said. And I try to show, you know, that's just not right what their argument is. Uh, maybe we can dispute that some other time, but that's, you know. Um, the second thing that I do is I show that the use of knowledge in society, you know, I just provide the documentary evidence. It was selected as one of the top 20 articles written in the first 100 years of the American Economic Review. That, that's not, you know, people don't get that award for candy. Like, they don't give that out, right? That's, it's, again, he affects the DNA of the way we do economics. A third thing that we did was we provided a family tree of Hayek's uh, ideas, both his, his uh, debate interlocutors, but then also those who were his friends, his teachers, as well as his students. Um, I should point out, because I just got back from Freiburg, there's a big missing part in the book, which is his Freiburg students. But that leads me to the next thing that we have, which is we have a part of the project of the book was a living bibliography. So when we finished the book, we originally had a bibliography of all the dissertations, articles, uh, whatnot that were written on Hayek, uh, you know, over the last, uh, since he won the Nobel Prize, basically. And uh, it grew so big again, showing the great breadth of Hayek's uh, influence that the publisher didn't want to include it in the book because it would have made the book like twice the size that it currently right. is. So what we did was we put it online and there's a link to it off my webpage and that you can continually add to it yourself. So because that's the whole point of it being a living bibliography and we will have the information about Hayek's students from Freiburg up on that list so you can see that as well. And that's going on. And then finally we have a... Uh, basically a timeline of Hayek's career. So you can kind of see where that's going. But again, this is all really focused on Hayek. And the point of the book is where Hayekian ideas are going. And so that's a big part of pushing for this, you know, where does the Hayekian ideas go? Where are the tensions? Where are the anomalies? How do we address those uh, to today? And I think that's the uh, uh, kind of uh, key component. Uh, so if there is an idea that's in the book, um, it is uh, two. One of them is this epistemic institutionalism book uh, idea and what all that entails in terms of dealing with prices, property, profit, profit and loss, uh, the role that different institutions in politics, law, society interact. Um, but the final thing, I think, is humility. Um, that is, is that what economics gives us uh, to a large extent is negative knowledge not positive knowledge. And we should be much more humble in our tasks. We should embrace our ideas, lowly philosophers, and not ever try to be the high priests of society. And Hayek gave us ample warning to do that. And I think that if we did that and we understood the limits of economics and understood that the economic scientist is primarily a teacher and a student and not ever an engineer and a savior, then uh, economics would be much improved 
and the world would not have the kind of troublesome mess that Hayek identified in his Nobel Prize uh, address. And so I hope that we uh, can communicate that idea uh, to people that economists are citizens and that what we try to have is the institutions that allow for a humane, self-governing, and democratic society, and that that is the true future of liberalism. Pete, I just want to end by congratulating you for writing, if I may say, an important and extremely thought-provoking book, and I thank you for being with us today. Thanks so much. And thank you, and I want to, again, publicly acknowledge you for the great work that you did uh, with me uh, on helping me write this book, and I can't thank you enough um, for I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.